You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Eric Bowen is a lifelong baseball fan who gets to live the life many fellow baseball fans only can dream about. He covers the grand game as an insider following Major League Baseball's most storied franchise. As a native of Cleveland, Eric moved to New York in 2001, just a few weeks before 9-11, and he has been Newsday's New York Yankees beat writer for the past 13 years. He knows what it's like to be a part of the New York media, and today we'll find out what it's like on the inside. He'll defend the New York media and also call them to task. I've been looking forward to this interview since Eric and I met during a Yankees Royal Series earlier this year. We spoke about mutual friends from Newsday, and he agreed to come on the podcast. Eric, welcome to Sports Connections. Thanks, Dave. I'm really, uh, really glad we're able to uh, to find time to be able to do this. Yeah, me too. Right during the during the pennant race, you know, the Royals are right. It no, never mind. Uh, <laughs> let's start with let's talk about the New York media. It's almost like it's an entity in and of itself. Do you agree with that? That New York media has its own definition. I mean, I think to other people that that it, it does. I don't think we in the the collective or royal we, however you want to. Uh, a phrase it uh, necessarily feel that way. I mean, we hear that certainly uh, when we're in other places and particularly if there's a big story that goes on and you'll hear sarcastic comments either from yeah. uh, fellow writers or from uh, other teams like, oh, there goes the New York press corps or, the, or New York New York Yankees must be in town, stuff like that. <laughs> um, and, and it doesn't, I, I don't interpret it as, as anything positive or negative to be, to be honest with you, but, uh, but, but there definitely is uh, that reputation and the reality is, Dave, is that, um, and I know we're going to get into this a, a little bit more because I know you have a, a few questions along these lines, but uh, I, I really don't think that um, the biggest difference, in all honesty, uh, to me, and I, I've been doing this, this is my 25th year uh, overall in the business. I started in uh, in the Warren Youngstown uh, market, worked there for five years before coming to New York for grad school, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's just more of us. Yeah, collectively uh, than anywhere else. And certainly when, when the teams come to New York, you, you know, you really, really see it because obviously a lot less uh, people travel. But uh, yes, you know, we have pre-COVID, uh, we had far and away the largest uh, beat crew that that would travel in, in Major League Baseball. I think at our peak, uh, maybe, a, a, and the peak of, of New York media traveling for the Yankees predates me. Uh, I think there used to be almost 15 publications or outlets that actually used to travel on a regular basis. When I started in 2009, I think that number was maybe 10. Um, I'd have to go back and, uh, and check, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still, uh, even though obviously, and, and you know, this too, Dave, the attrition that has taken hold in our business over the last 15 uh, years or so, uh, but we're, we're still the largest traveling beat, uh, certainly pre COVID, uh, in COVID times. Now, not as many of us are traveling. You saw that when the Yankees were there uh, yeah. a few weeks ago, there probably would have been about double, uh, the amount of us that were actually there. But, uh, again, I, to me, uh, the New York media thing, and when people speak speak of it either in pejorative terms or uh, in even sometimes admiring terms. Uh, I think it really just comes down to there's a lot more of us uh, than there are in other places. The reputation, and we'll get into in a second, we'll get into whether it's well-earned or not, but the reputation is that that you guys are just, you're mean, you're, I use the term when they, the questions I sent to you, carnivorous, you know, you, you're man-eaters, you, you, you know, that's the perception. First of all, does does it extend beyond sports? 
do educators, politicians, social workers, et cetera, get the same treatment as athletes, coaches, and administrators? You know, I mean, I, I would say yes, but I'm saying that, David, is, is a kind of an uninformed opinion because I don't work in, in news and political coverage and entertainment coverage, et cetera. Um, yeah. So I, I can only kind of answer that from afar. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I do know that, uh, you know, or certainly observe that, uh, you know, that politicians, et cetera, you know, they, they try to avoid being on the back page of the tabloids uh, in a negative sense, certainly, uh, than, uh, than if they could avoid it. Um, I mean, certainly with, with uh, a couple of the tabloids in particular that, that ha- can get very incendiary with, with some of the things yes. that they can put on both front and back pages when uh, sports is not a, uh, immune from that necessarily. But um you know, it's um, I remember an Alex Rodriguez line from a few years ago uh, when he was on a, a Fox broadcast a pregame show. I think it was with uh, with Pete Rose and uh, 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 Rose said something that got him trending on Twitter. And, and uh, Alex, uh, who's some of his best lines uh, over the years were actually scripted for him. Uh, but in this case, I think this was off the cuff. He said, you know, Pete, it's never a good thing when you're trending on Twitter. Um, and, and I think that. Uh, uh, Certainly that there's politicians, entertainers, et cetera, who don't think it's necessarily a good thing if you're on the back page of one of the New York uh, tabloids. Yeah. Uh, again, unless it's for a, it's a positive reason, but uh, I, I guess that probably doesn't happen as often as they would, uh, as they would like. You're, you run with the, with the sports crowd. Do you think that the perception of the New York media being what we, how we described it is strongest in baseball? Because, and maybe that's, and if so, maybe it's because there's, there's a game every day. You know, you guys have two teams. You also have two teams in hockey and basketball. And, and I actually got three teams in hockey now um, and basketball and, and football. But but with baseball, do you think it's the it's the strongest that perception is strongest in baseball? That's hard to say. I mean, I have to say, I, I feel when I covered the Jets, which I did in 2009, um, before getting moved over to the, I'm sorry, 2008, before getting moved to the Yankees in 2009, I, I feel I heard some of that same um, when the Jets would, which the Jets would travel and there'd be a, a hook of a lot of us in the, in a press box in a given uh, road city. So uh, again, I, I've just been in the insular world of, uh, of covering major league baseball the last 13 years. I'm not a general assignment reporter anymore. So um you know, my only experience is with baseball, but I, I tend to think that if you asked one of, uh, you know, let's say Al Ionazone, our Jets reporter, or Tom Rock, our, our Giants reporter, or Bob Glauber, our longtime NFL columnist, uh, and if I went through all the, you know, uh, Greg Logan, our Nets reporter, et cetera, I, I think that they would probably say that, uh, that they hear some of those same comments in, in their sports too. All right. When you were here, you and I talked about the, about this general t- topic, you know, we we made the connection. I think I requested something from you and I found out you were from Newsday and, and, you know, I worked on the high school beat with Wally Matthews <laughs> to tell you how far back I go at Newsday. But we, we talked about the fact that you agree with some of the perception, but you also want to defend. So I'm going to give you the chance to start defend the New York media against the common perception of being ruthless and mean. And, and as I said before, carnivorous. Well, I, there's a, there's a few layers to it. I, I think people equate some of the meanness uh, that you get with certain back page uh, headlines or even headlines when you get inside the, the newspaper, and they equate that with the, the reporter or the reporters writing the stories. And uh, as you know, obviously being in the business a very long time, uh, we don't write our own headlines. Uh, we don't have nothing to do with the back pages. We have nothing to do with how the pictures are cropped, et cetera, et cetera. And I think sometimes when you see one of the 
the the and you see it on uh, you know a, a morning ESPN show or whatever where they'll, they'll take a, a back page of the New York Post or Daily News or Newsday whatever it may be. Um, and they'll put it up on screen when somebody has failed spectacularly or a team has failed spectacularly. And, you know, there's a there's an element of of, of snarkiness or even outright meanness. I, I, I would not disagree with that characterization of some of them. Um, people see that and then they everything gets lumped together as, oh, there's that New York media again being being mean <laughs> to people. But if you actually read the the, you know, the story or the column or something like that, uh, that has to do with that event or that person, there's a little bit no, more nuance to it. Uh, I'm not saying that people have not been guilty of taking cheap shots over the years, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that, that that's part and parcel, uh, unfortunately, of the business. But I would argue that that takes place in all 30 uh, Major League Baseball uh, cities. Uh, the the one thing it's interesting I, I've I've talked to players about this um, from other teams uh, that have played in other media markets and some uh, I'll give you an example I remember talking to AJ Burnett uh, who's a big free agent signing for the Yankees in 2009 and and he had a an up and down uh, career kind of overall um, but with, with the Yankees he probably had more down moments than uh, than not he, um, although 2009 he was very underrated with his contributions to that World Series uh, team particularly game two of the World Series after the Yankees lost game one at Yankee Stadium they had to win game two and Burnett was absolutely terrific and that people have forgotten that over the years but I remember talking to him he had been in Toronto and he'd heard all sorts of horror stories about the New York media and I remember going up to his his locker one day in the clubhouse and we were just BSing as, as you know we yeah. used to do when we were in the clubhouse, right, uh, right. You, you know, you don't, people don't always realize we're not always going up to these guys with a notebook and a recorder. A, a lot of times it's just, you know, you get to know people, you're trying to get them to trust you. You, you know, you, you find some biographical information about them. That's very interesting. And you talk to them about that, um, whatever it may be. But at any rate, you know, I asked Burnett, I said, so, you know, I'm sure you heard quite a bit, you know, perception wise about the New York media, you know, being coming from Toronto, what's been your experience like? And he said, uh, he goes, he goes, I think it's been great. And this is, he had, he was not pitching well at the time. He had taken some rough, you know, some, some rough stories, some rough yeah. back pages, yeah. whatever. Um, and one of the things he said, he goes, he goes, look, he goes, it's real simple here. He said, uh, if you pitch well, he goes, you write good things about us. If I pitch like blank, you guys write that I pitch like blank. Um, yeah. and he goes, you know what? He goes, most of us, and he meant, professional athletes or at least baseball players who he was you know not really speaking for but just using the us as a, as a right. phrase he goes most of us he goes we're good with that you know he goes i know if i pitch like bleepity bleep and and you know if if uh, if you write that that's how i pitched then that's fine he said he goes in toronto and i'm not besmirching to front media this was this was aj's interpretation he goes there was a personal element to it when you didn't perform well as if you were, you know, letting down somebody other than your yourself or your your teammates. You know, there was more to it. There was a there was a, a little bit of a needle that was put in that was of a personal element uh, that had nothing to do with the performance. He said, "Here in New York, he goes, yeah, there's a lot more of you guys." He said, "But, but the reality is, he goes, uh, it's just kind of down the middle. It's it's if I, if I do well, you praise me. If I, if I don't, you you guys uh, tell me I didn't do so well, and I already knew that." And I, and I think, you know, and I've defended the New York media because I used to be part of it. Not, not to the extent that you are. I mean, I, the highest I got was I was a, a regular columnist on minor league baseball and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, I defend it saying one, there's just that many more, there's that, there's that many more sports opportunities. If we talk about the big four sports, now, if we had 
you know, we're big into soccer here. You've got two MLS teams. So if you talk about the big five sports, you've got 11 teams. Kansas City has three. And so there's more opportunity to cover, more opportunity to write about good things, write about bad things. And there's also a lot more of you. So everybody has to come up with their own angle. And the easiest way to do it is to be critical. I think that's a human nature thing. And so, and like you said, it's the articles may not be as 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 negative, as, as judgmental as the headlines are. And that's what people read first. So now that you've, now that you've defended them, um, you think some of the reputation is well-earned. Why, why would you, how, how do you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, there's certain stories that uh, over the years that have become big stories that I, I laugh at and, and that I, I don't want to say I refuse to cover because I work for, you know, I've worked for right. people and, and there's stuff that, yeah. you know, happens that, um, you know, you, you, you your bosses say we want a story on this. And so you may, you know, push back, but you can only push back to, to some degree. Um I'm trying to think of an example. Well, I'll give you a recent one, and it's not. This is not where where the the, the quote collective media was, was out of line on something, but it was a narrative that was pushed that uh, that I just refused to put up and and uh, put any word in Newsday about it. Um, and I'm not patting myself on the back. You you don't know me, but that's not something I do. I don't promote my work on Twitter. I don't retweet my own stories. When I do radio appearances, I don't retweet it ten times like it's a, a drinking game of some kind. Um, you know, I just and that sounds like I'm criticizing people who do that. I I really am not. It's just it's just not my personal. Anyone that knows me knows I'm, I'm fairly uh, low key, but I, I was proven correct on this, and I've been repeatedly proven I'm correct on it this year. Is anytime the Yankees have a team meeting when they're not playing well, and somebody finds out they're having a team meeting, or just an innocuous question gets asked of Aaron Boone or Aaron Judge or whoever, and says, "Oh, have you talked to the team?" and then they say, "When the Yankees have gone badly this year," and all of a sudden it becomes Yankees have a team meeting. And that's going to fix everything. And that that storyline drove drove me crazy when I was 22 years old and had absolutely no idea what I was doing in this business. And 20 some 25 years later, I don't know much much more than I did when I was 22. But I do know that those things are 99% of the time completely irrelevant. And uh, we just had one uh, the other night where the Yankees actually had back to back team meetings. They had one after they they lost uh, they lost a game Sunday against Toronto. They had a team meeting the judge told us about, and then they uh, went and laid an egg the very next day, lost ten to three to the Mets. Um, and lo and behold, the the question it was I'm sorry it was not on a Sunday it was on a Thursday to Toronto, and then Friday was the Mets series uh, series opener, and they lost ten to three to the Mets and had another team meeting that they were then uh, people were asked about, and and this is about and I think I put it online the Yankees. I believe lead the the league in team meetings this year, and and their record after those have come to light is, is I don't know even know if they've won a game. Um, and and let me be very clear on something: I'm not criticizing the players. This is a criticism of the media for taking a lazy narrative and running with it, uh, and thinking that that this this has an impact on how a team plays. Are there team meetings in various sports that that actually do have an impact? Sure, absolutely. But 99% of the time, that's a, a media-driven narrative uh, the, of which there's absolutely zero relevance. And even Brett Gardner kind of hinted at it the other day uh, when he was asked about it. He goes, well, you know, we have a lot of meetings, which is true. Most of them we don't even know about. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll just, I remember 
when I was working in Warren and I was helping uh, the Warren Tribune's coverage of the expansion Browns in, two, uh, in uh, 1999, I remember Jerry Ball, a, a veteran defensive lineman who, whose best days had been when he was with the uh, Lions, but like with most expansion drafts, those are the type of players, you know, at the end of their careers that the, the teams get, at least certainly for the, the rules that they were way set up for, uh, for the Browns that uh, in 99. But anyway, the, the Browns were 0-9, 0-10, just a, a horrendous team. Um, and I remember talking to ball in the, the locker room and asking him, you know, breathlessly about this team meeting. He goes, he goes, young man, I don't know how long you plan to be in this business, but let me explain something to you. I, I've been on good teams. I've been on a lot of bad teams. The bad teams have a lot of team meetings. Only the worst teams have so many team meetings. And, and I always kind of remembered that. And, and yeah. I've run that and I've run that by players over the years that, that I've been doing this. And most of them kind of nod their head and, and smile and say, you know, yeah, you guys make a bigger deal out of that stuff than it, than it really is. Again, that's not a criticism of players. They, they can meet every every game, every week, whatever. It's it's us that glom onto that and, and affix more relevance to it than it uh, than it really is. So so what I, I call it the runaway narrative, Dave. Um, and uh, that's just a recent example, but of something that you know, instead of pausing and really thinking, you know, is this news, it just sort of becomes a, a tidal wave. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, judge calls team meeting to try to spur the team. And then we don't follow up on it. You know, the next day they lose 10 to three or six, nothing, or, you know, whatever it is. And then when the next one comes down the pike two or three weeks later or two or three months later, it's rinse repeat. And that, that kind of thing drives me nuts. It's a, a great explanation. Now, I don't know you real well. We obviously met this past summer, uh, but but you seem like a fairly mild-mannered, friendly guy. How do you survive in such a cutthroat world? You know, I mean, when when I'm when I'm covering the Royals, um, you know, back in the day when we could go into the clubhouse and, you know, I remember when Whit Merrifield was chasing the Royals' uh, hitting streak record. George Brett held it for years and years at thirty, and Merrifield ended up getting to 31 and then, and then going hitless. And we'd gather around his locker, you know, I'd have to reach my arm way over because there might've been 10, 12, (laughs) 10 or 12 guys around his locker to hear him say, well, I'm going to try my best to get a hit today. What's great. I love, I love talking to him because he's not going to, he's not going to gloss over the negative and he's not going to puff up the positive, but you know, if if there was somebody in the Yankees chasing, you know, a hallowed record, you know, I mean, we have we have one hallowed guy. That's George Brett. You guys have a bunch. Uh, you know, if there was somebody chasing a hallowed record, there'd be 50 people around him. How, how do you as a mild mannered guy survive when you're not going to be pushing yourself in the way? Do you understand what I'm asking? I, I yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I look, I I. My first, this is my 13th year. I, I really try to phrase this um, as well as I can. I, I really don't, I, I don't feel I did a good enough job for the first large portion of that, those 13 years of um, having the confidence in myself to separate myself from the pack that you're kind of, you know, describing there. And, you know, uh, I would be one of those 50 and I still would be, you know, depending on the, on the topic, you know, if Aaron judge is, you know, chasing, you know, 
some kind of a, you know, 60 home runs or, or 70 yeah. home, you know, whatever, you know, yeah, I'm going to be reaching over those 50 people trying to get the, the sound bite too. Uh, but I might not do it for 15 minutes. I might go talk to someone else in the clubhouse uh, that has a very minor, uh, uh, maybe I, I saw something or I saw him talking to judge during uh, batting practice and it's a, it's a, it's a reserve. And I might go talk to him about something. And then maybe, you know, I always remember the story that uh, not equating the, what we're talking about to what I'm about to, to tell you here, but the uh, Jimmy Breslin always told the story about the, uh, the Kennedy assassination and on deadline, he had to you know come up with, with a column and he went and uh, he interviewed the, uh, the, the guy that, Doug the grave, Doug Kennedy's grave, and led his story. With that's a very famous uh, story that's taught, and I think still caught in, in journalism uh, courses on how to do something different on a big event. That was the, you know, that th that's the hook. Um, and so I, I really, I didn't do a good enough job of that, and I I still don't always um, of of finding that that other narrative, if you will. We were talking about narrative earlier, um, and, and having the confidence in yourself as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a writer, uh, to do that. Um, and so I, I think that's ultimately how you do, you know, kind of separate yourself. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're finding a controversial angle. It doesn't mean you're finding a more critical right. angle. Sometimes it ends up being that. Um, but it's, it's finding something a little bit different to fit into that narrative. You know, uh, it, let's just say judges chasing 70 home runs, you know, instead of writing, you know, Aaron judge, big, strong, six, seven, 282 pound, uh, outfielder chasing 70 home runs. And boy, does he hit the ball far with a lot of exit velocity. Um, you know, <laughs> every, and, and I, and I, I've written those stories. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not separating myself yeah. from that. Um, but what I, I really, really try to do, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is find a, another layer to that. Yeah, I'm going to have all of that elements in there because, frankly, that still is what people uh, want to read uh, to an extent, but maybe I can give it to them uh, a little bit differently than, than everyone else. Yeah, and it may, it may be that, you know, he wasn't a high draft pick out of Fresno State because he wasn't hitting a lot of home runs in college. I'll, I'll give you a judge example of, of, but it was just an early story that, you know, got thrown away uh, at one point, but when we were on the West coast and we were in Oakland, and this is one of the advantages of doing this, you know, I'm of the traveling Yankees media. I think I'm third in seniority uh, for doing it the, the longest, which if you had told the 2009 or 10 version of myself that that would happen one day. Yeah. I would be, I would have laughed at you because uh, I really hated the job at first, to be honest, but that's a whole other story. Um, but um, and it had nothing to do with the job. It was me feeling completely underwater and overwhelmed by it. Um, but uh, I, I went and talked to Judge because I remembered it, uh, Yankees were at Oakland and at Oakland Coliseum was actually the very first time that Judge was on a big league ball field because he was drafted um, from Fresno State. And a week after he was drafted, the 2014 that was in 2014 the Yankees happen to be in Oakland. And so as they will do uh, with some of their higher draft picks, they'll invite them in, you know, put them in a Yankee uniform, have them take batting practice with the team, et cetera, et cetera, get their, you know, it's, it's just sort of a uh, welcome to the Yankees thing. Yeah. Uh, well, the Yankees did that with judge back in 2014. And I was there back in 2014. And I remembered that. And I remember guys like Mark Teixeira and Robinson Cano and Kevin Long, then the hitting coach, you know, kind of raving about him, et cetera, et cetera. So I pulled judge aside um, and, you know, some other people were writing, you know, the, Judge returns home to California, a lot of friends, family in the stands, which is all fine. 
I talked to him about that day taking batting practice the very first time as a, a draft pick and, and interacting with Mark Teixeira and Cano and what he rem- and CC Sabathia and what he remembered about that day. And he he told me a, a, a great story about how he was in the clubhouse, very intimidated, just trying to stay out of the way. And he went into the the food area at Oakland Coliseum and uh, went and sat by a ta- sat by himself at a table, just sort of staying out of the way. And he said CC Sabathia, who was that night's uh, starting pitcher, uh, called over and said, "Hey." What are you doing there sitting by yourself? You know, get over here and introduce. And then said, I'm CC Sabathia. Judge is like, uh, yeah, I know who you, I know who you are. <laughs> and it, but he just told the story of, you know, how CC, who was the starter that night, uh, taught him how to treat a young player who might be in the yeah. clubhouse and might be nervous for the first time. And, and Judge, you know, said, he goes, you know, that was the first time I kind of felt like a, a big leader. So I was able to write that story. And I wouldn't have thought to ask him about that if I had not been there in 2014. Right. And I hadn't even, I looked up my notebook item that I wrote from, from that afternoon about, you know, this, you know, this big Aaron Judge, six, seven, you know, rookie took batting practice. And it was a, it's not like I, you know, predicted anything. It was like the yeah. third note. It was the third note in my notebook. I, I did, I had no <laughs> foreseeing of, of what was to come whatsoever, yeah. but it was a notebook item. Um, but anyway, that, that kind of institutional knowledge, you know, is something that I, I, I have grown to enjoy as I've gotten more and more veteran in this, because uh, it can be helpful to, to give you a little, and that's not a Pulitzer prize winning story. I'm not, again, not patting right. myself on the back, but at least it was something a, a little bit different than, um, than Aaron judge returns home. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a great example, Eric, because, you know, so many, we, we get, Young people, Kansas City is not a big market. It's a major league market, but it's not a big market. We get a lot of, of young people who think that they need to make their mark by doing something brash or out there, you know, just whether it's really, really negative or exorbitantly positive that's not necessarily true or whatever. They think they have to make a splash. It's, it's you know, what I've heard called the sports center syndrome. They want to get on sports center before they've been on the local news, you know. Uh, and and the, the key is just to to do your job, to be thorough, and to look for an angle that not everybody, uh, not everybody recognizes. So I think that's I think that's great advice. Uh, I know we're a little bit short on time, so I'm going to skip over a couple of things here. Um, you've been doing this for 13 years with the Yankees. You, you know, you told me, and we'll get to the fact that you're not a Yankees fan, but who's your favorite Yankee to cover in those 13 years? Oof. I should have been prepared for this because I, I do get asked that periodically. I, off the top of my head, I, I think that you know, and and oh, you know, I, I'm not one of those that that tells you about how many friends that I have in the organization. Right. So, so this player is my buddy. This guy is I, I, that's that's just not you know a separation in church for church and state for me. Uh, and it's not a matter of uh, that, that they necessarily like me either. Um, right. So, uh, or would want to be my friend. But I, I, so when favorite is not like, Oh, who I was closest to, et cetera, et cetera. To me, it's, you know, who was accountable, who, who, was, yeah. you know, either off to the side one-on-one or just collectively treated us, you know, uh, well. Uh, some of the guys, you know, one of the first that comes to mind when people ask that is Andy Pettit. Um, Pettit was a guy that um, we would stand around after a game, and if he was bad, you almost didn't have to ask him many follow-ups because he would just eviscerate himself. Um, and even sometimes when he was good, I remember a game in Anaheim, uh, you know, whatever, before he retired, obviously, so 2011, 12, whatever. I think he lost two to one. He gave up two runs over seven innings, pitched brilliantly. The other guy just was a little bit better. And Pettit went on a two minute monologue 
on on the two pitches that were mistakes that the Angels scored runs off of it just just killed himself for it. And then we all sort of looked at each other as like, well, not much of a follow up, nothing to really follow up on here. Um, And so he was just, you know, you, you asked him what time it was and he would try to give you a a thoughtful, uh, thoughtful answer. Um, And so, uh, you know, he never, you know, shied. And and like I said, when, when he didn't perform well, um, there were never any excuses. There was never any uh, snappy answers to the media where he was taking out his frustration on us, which by the way, I actually completely understand um, in in some circumstances, actually in a lot of circumstances, if someone was constantly, you know, if I wrote a bad story and I've written my fair share and somebody five minutes after I filed was questioning me about why did you dangle this participle? Why did you leave with this, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) I might get, I might get defensive with that. So I actually do get that. Um, I've told players that over the years, I actually told a Yankee the other day, uh, I fumbled a question in a group setting and, 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 didn't put him in a great spot to, to answer it. And uh, he came over to say something to me about his answer. Cause he didn't give a really good answer either. And I cut him off and I said, which I appreciated him doing. It wasn't necessary yeah. for him to uh, come over and, and try to clarify. Um, I just said, I go, you know what? I go, you know how sometimes a, uh, you know, and a bat doesn't go the way that you want it to. I said, sometimes if we ask questions and it doesn't come out the way we want it to. And I said, that was, that was a case. And then we had a back and forth and he goes, you want to try it again? I'll give you a better answer. And then, you know, had fun with it. But, but I, the, um, so yeah, I get people getting defensive when we're, we're quizzing yeah. them in, in that way. But anyway, you know, Pettit was one of those that, that no matter how badly he pitched or you know how, you know, rough the question might be, you know, never, uh, never had any issue. And, and I'll throw the general manager, Brian Cashman in that, in that category too, because um, obviously COVID has changed his, his availability somewhat, but he was always, um, if the Yankees were not doing well, they've lost four or five in a row. He would just magically show up because he knew he wanted to take the pressure for a day off the manager, off the players. To, and he knows obviously he's the general manager to put the team together. Uh, he, he knows the media would be looking for somebody uh, and, and maybe him. And he would just suddenly mysteriously show up in Baltimore or Boston or yeah. Kansas city, whatever. He would just show up. Things weren't going well. Uh, and they're the general managers on the field to, uh, to take some bullets. And, uh, and he's done that uh, as long as I've covered the team and, and talking to people that go back to the late nineties with them uh, that he's kind of always uh, he's been that way. So, you know, for me, it's always, it's, it's accountability and, you know, you don't have to make my job easier. Just don't make it more difficult. And, and those yeah. are the, uh, those are the, the players uh, or executives in the case of Cashman that, uh, you know, I've kind of gravitated to over the years, but, but that, Andy Pettit kind of comes to it comes to mind first and yeah. foremost uh, uh, on that list, but the, it's extensive. I really I, it, overall, you know, and you talk about reputations, feel oh, you know, the big bad Yankees, and you know, who's the biggest, you know, this or that in, in a negative sense in the clubhouse. And uh, I, I really can't give you someone in 13 years uh, that was just out and right hostile towards us. I, I know that that's it, it's existed before and uh you know and i've certainly heard a lot of stories uh of previous yankees and all that but in the window that i've been covering the team i nobody comes to mind who is just outright like i said uh hostile towards us there's plenty of guys that didn't enjoy talking to us and and would let you know it and, and yeah. were not as available as maybe we would have liked them to be but in terms of just being uh, uh directly a, a pain in the you know what and and never cooperative i you know knock on knock on wood i haven't experienced that it's interesting, Eric. You know the the Royals had a had a good run uh, in the middle of the last decade, and there's two guys that the fans really took to, and those two guys couldn't have been farther apart on the spectrum of dealing with the media. Eric Hosmer 
you know, I've got, I, I do have some friends. I've been covering them for more than 20 years. I do have some guys I've become close to. Uh, and, and, you know, they were good ball players and they were good interviews. Now, when, when the, you know, when I was in the post-game setting, our friendship was, was put to the side. If, if he had a tough game, you know, I'd ask him a tough question or that type of thing. But there are other guys like Eric Hosmer. Eric, during the, during the run up to the, you know, to the really good years in 12 and 13, we've, we figured out that we could always go to Eric. If the team did well, you know, everybody wanted to talk. If the team wasn't going well, we could go to Eric and get a perspective. It, it wasn't quite this, this bad, but it was almost like, okay, Eric, Eric got the day off and, you know, somebody else was playing first base and the team lost three to two and Eric didn't pinch hit. So what's your perspective on, you know, what, what, how would the game have been different if you had a chance to pitch in the, in the ninth, that type of thing. He, he gave thoughtful answers. He didn't give coach speak. He would give answers that if we were looking for an angle, we could go to Eric. We knew that before the game, after the game, whatever. His best buddy, Mike Moustakas, was the exact opposite. Now, Moose ended up being in a pretty good interview and, and has become uh, friendly to a lot of the media. But I remember one, two, two things. One, one game, uh, he had gotten chastised the day before about not being willing to talk to the media. That, that's something the Royals do not allow. They don't allow a person to say, I don't talk to the media. That's just, it's just the culture here. And so he was just being really terse with his answers. And, and, and so the general manager said, you have to talk to the media. And so his answer to like six different questions was, uh, and I'm trying to think of the picture. Um, I should have, I should have written this one down, but I didn't think about it. Um, the, anyway, a, a nondescript picture, you know, so, so Mike, talk about, you know, that diving play you made at third base. Well, so-and-so pitched a really good game tonight. Okay, we'll talk about that at bat in the sixth inning. Well, so-and-so pitched a really good game tonight. His answer was exactly the same for six straight questions. And finally, we walked away. Like, yeah, we're probably not going to get an answer <laughs> from him. And through the years, he ended up being better and more approachable and stuff. We liked talking to Eric Hosmer because we knew he would make our job. You talked about it. Moose made our job more difficult. Haas made our job easier. And, and, you know, not, not what, like we were looking for the easy way out, but we were looking for somebody to help the fans understand because our job is to tell their story to the fans. And it helped us do that uh, in a different way. So I, I think I understand uh, what you're saying there. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it, 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 you put it perfectly where our job is to help fans understand, because I think fans a lot of times think that all we do in the clubhouse is give these guys a hard time and it is a game of failure. And so you are by nature asking more questions about not coming through than, than coming yeah. through. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, whether it's pregame and you're working on a feature thing, or like I said, we are just, you know, BSing with, with, with somebody, uh, trying to get the, to know them a little bit better. And maybe they get to know you a little bit better too. And you, you get to be seen as something more than just somebody in front of them with a recorder and a notebook asking questions about going 0 for 4 and striking out in the ninth inning or giving up a game winning home run, whatever yeah. it may be. Um, but, you know, our job is to uh, give the, the fans or the readers or the listeners, whatever it may be, uh, access that they don't have uh, otherwise. And so, um, you know, but what fans also don't understand is that we don't want to be in there any longer than we have to 
after yeah. the game either. And I don't think players always under the, understand that either. Either, and you know, one of the things Jason Zillow, the the Yankees media relations director, does a very good job of uh, uh, is that he does stress every year to players and and during the season to players post game. Uh, and again, this is all pre COVID that we're we're talking about, certainly. Right. Um, but he says to them, look these guys or women don't want to be in the clubhouse after a game any more or any longer than you want them in there. So go out there, do your two or three minutes, get it done. And they will be the, get the hell out of there. Um, and by and large, uh, since I've been covering the Yankees that, you know, we, I, I hear horror stories about other you know towns where this player made people wait an hour and a half after a game or something like that. Generally speaking, um, that has not, that doesn't happen w- with the Yankees because uh, again, you know, Zillow has been good at relaying the message to the players that we, re- you know, we're on deadline. Most of us, um, we don't really want or need to be in there uh, for a very long time. And so the yeah. quicker they, the quicker they come out and do their thing, the quicker uh, we go back upstairs and, and they get to close the clubhouse and, and have it to themselves. You talk about the failure in the game. And I think a lot of cities, fans of a lot of teams would be really happy to have, to have the Yankees failure of the past, uh, <laughs> you know, well, basically since you've been covering them, so it's your fault. <laughs> you know, they won, they won the world series your first year and haven't won since, since then the Royals, the Cubs, the Astros have broken long streaks. The Red Sox have won too, which probably has to be the most galling. Uh, how much pressure is there on the, on the Yankees to get back to the world series and win? Well, By the way, it, it probably isn't your fault. <laughs> um the um you know and the red sox have won two in that stretch by the way right. so they, they don't, yeah. don't think don't think yankee fans aren't keeping score uh on that the, since the yankees last won when the red sox have you know a couple of oh four and oh seven also um right. so yeah if you're keeping score at home and trust me yankee fans are the fact that since you know 2001 the, the or since 2004 the yankees have won and the uh, the Red Sox have four is something certainly at the forefront of a lot of fans' uh, minds. But yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pressure, but it's not the same as what it was when George Steinbrenner w- was running things. His son Hal just is not cut from the same mold. That is not a criticism. A lot of things that George Steinbrenner did were absolutely insane. And they didn't work nearly as much as revisionist history has suggested that they that they have. You know, there was a, there was an 18 year uh, wandering in the wilderness, if you will, uh, in Steinbrenner's uh, tenure, 18 years where the Yankees did not make the playoffs. Now, certainly if there was a wild card back then uh, right. and different playoff setup that they, they would have qualified quite a few times in that stretch. But the reality was for the rules of the time, they went 18 years without the playoffs. Can you imagine this current iteration going that long without a playoff berth? I realize they've gone, you know, a, a long time with, with only one world series, but without making the playoffs period. So, um, you know, but the, so the pressure though, isn't the same as what it was under George Steinbrenner where, you know, people felt their jobs were in peril, forget on a year to year basis, but on a week to week basis. And sometimes on a game to game basis, depending on how it went and what kind of a mood uh, the boss was, was in. So, uh, you know, the, the pressure certainly is there. Uh, if the team misses the playoffs this year, I do think that, that Aaron Boone, who was who in the last year of his contract, you know, potentially could be in trouble, but I, I don't think it's a guarantee. Uh, and I think Brian Cashman, who has one year left on his contract, um, 
I think he would be safe as well. Uh, and again, that's that's going with a worst case scenario from a Yankees perspective that they that they missed the playoffs. I think if they make it and ha- have an early exit, I still think everyone will probably uh, all be safe there. Um, but yeah, it just the 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 pressure does not exist in the way uh, that that it that it did when when George Steinbrenner was running things. Although, I mean, certainly, you know, from a media standpoint, it, it, it will be very. Um, the, the coverage will be very hard if they if they miss the playoffs or if they were to lose the wild card game or lose in the division series and, and come up short, uh, you know, yet again of, of qualifying for their first words World Series since 2009. Um, you know, I mean, I think all of that and, and certainly the fan base is is, you know, they're you know, they've been angry all season. Uh, I can only imagine what it'll look like if they miss the playoffs or, or go out early. You know, it's it's uh, I know the job of a columnist it's easier to write when the team's losing. You, you have much more fodder for, for your columns. But as a beat writer, is it easier for you to cover a club that's um, that's winning or losing? Because you've been through both this year. You had a like a 13-game winning streak and then followed that up right away with like 11 out of 13 losses. I mean, everyone certainly, David, you, you know this, everyone's in a better mood when the team is yeah. is winning uh you know from a, a beat writer standpoint to me just keep it interesting uh that's that's my main you know what i want out of it um you know good bad or, or indifferent and certainly the yankees have provided all of that and then some uh this year and really every year since i since i've covered the yankees you know i, I have not covered a team. Uh, and I sometimes, and I have no idea what this is like, um, and it's nice, nothing to do with me. I just haven't experienced it, but, uh, you know, covering a team that's out of it by June and how you cover the last 80, 90, even a hundred games for, for a team that, that is out of it so early on, um, I, to me, uh, I, I don't know how I would do that. Um, and I haven't had to experience it, so I don't know if I'd be good at it or, or terrible at it. Yeah. I suspect I would not be good at it. Not that I'm good at doing it the way I do it now with a winning team, but, but, uh, you know, where the games just don't mean anything by the middle of June. Um, I think that would be, uh, that would be tough because of the everyday nature. I think it would be much easier in football to, uh, to cover that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just in a, in a, you know, in a general sense, uh, when, when the team is winning, uh, you know, you, you get, you know, a little bit more cooperation and, and the, yeah. the players and the staff isn't maybe dreading seeing you as much as, uh, as when they're winning and everyone's just, a, you know, a little bit, there's a little bit more giddy up in their step. Sure. The, uh, and I'm, I'm very aware of the time. So I'm going to wrap that. I got one more baseball question for you and then I'll follow up with my, my last two questions that I ask everybody. You have to be a baseball fan to have stayed as a beat writer for 13 years. What do you like most about the game of baseball? I just, you know, and and I, I've said this for years, and I, I continue to say it. You know, if I if I don't get, you know, still a charge when I walk into uh, Fenway Park or Wrigley Field or Dodger Stadium uh, or really any ballpark, to be honest with you, I like going to Oakland Coliseum as much as everyone makes fun of of, wow. what a, of a dump that it is. Well, that's a baseball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I just think, you know, look, it's the it's the fourth oldest ballpark, you know, that we have, and and there's you know so many of the ball, newer ballparks. That a lot of them are beautiful, but you know, uh, some of them have there's a sameness element to it. Uh, but there's nothing like Fenway. There's nothing like Wrigley. There's nothing like Dodger Stadium. Um, and and really, there's there's nothing like Oakland Coliseum. And that's probably a good thing, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I still, I still like going out to the Bay area. They, they still have a, a, it's a small base, but it's a devoted base of fans. Um, you know, and if I don't 
see it as a privilege every time I get to travel to a different city and someone else is paying for me to do that. Uh, and if I don't acknowledge that as the privilege that it is, then I need to go do something else. Uh, and in year 13, I still feel the same way about that as I did um, in year one in 2009 doing it. Um, I, I love the job. I, lo I like it more than I ever have. There's elements of the business that drive me crazy that have gotten worse. There, there's a there's a fandom element that has entered the press box that really rubs me the wrong way. Uh, I call it the fanboy and, and fangirl uh, crowd. It's not everybody. It's it's a minority, but but I see it more and more. I've seen it more and more. People that, that, that almost openly root, root, root for the home team that they cover. Uh, I don't believe that that's our job. Um, and so I'm, I'm old school that way. And I realized that, that that perspective is is slowly bleeding out of the business, and, and I'm a dinosaur in that respect. But I'll I'll keep fighting that fight as long as I'm uh, as long as I'm in it. Um, it doesn't mean that you are looking to write critically. It just means I truly don't care whether they win or lose. It's not. I don't want them to lose. I don't want them to win. Um, I really, really does not matter to me. Uh, I'm interested in the story. I'm interested in a fast game as opposed to a, a four hour and 13 minute nine inning game. But ultimately, ultimately, I root for myself. Uh, that's a line that, that you hear from, from a lot of us. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean uh, wins and losses necessarily, but it means good stories uh, and interesting stories. Um, and, and that's really what I'm what I'm after. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the job as much if not more than than I ever have before. I, I will I will tell you that I've been a Royals fan since 1969. I was uh, it was the year I turned 11. I turned 11 that fall and I, I didn't go to opening day. My parents believed that I should be in, in school for some reason. But, uh, you know, I went to a bunch of games that year and I still consider myself a Royals fan. But when I'm when I'm in the press box and I don't cover every game when I'm in the press box, I can I can separate that. I think that's what you're being critical of. Yes, not, yeah, that, I'm, absolutely. not that I'm a Royals fan. Absolutely, but the, Dave. The person who writes and asks questions. Oh, it's you know it, it's Eric Hosmer. It's you know uh, Danny Duffy. Whoever yeah. you know, and I I have to be. I can't ask him a negative question because he might not like me. Right. You know, I think that's what you're being critical of. Yes, hundred percent. It, it irritates my wife when I come home and. And she'll say, you know, boy, it's too bad they lost. And I and I tell her, whatever the score is at the end of the seventh inning, because I'm when I'm working for AP, I absolutely can't pick sides. I can't be, right. you know, I can't be, I can't favor one side over the other. The worst thing possible for me is a walk off win, because that means rewrite, especially if it's a come from behind walk off win. You know, if it's go, if we're going into the extra innings, then I know the game is tied. And I can be prepared if the teams, other team scores in the top of the inning, I can start writing quickly because my just just like you, I'm sure my stories are due three minutes after the last yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, and I'll so, give you, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll say to my wife, actually, I was, you know, yeah, I know the Royals threatened, but I was really glad they didn't come back. How do you call yourself a Royals fan? I said, <laughs> I'm rooting for me. And I've used that very expression. Yeah. I'm rooting for me. She goes, is it all about you? And I said, when I'm on deadline, it is. It's, it's damn right, it is. Um, I, you know, I, I think. I mean, I always knew that the fan element was pretty much completely out of me for years. I've been doing this a, a long time, as as we opened with. But where it really solidified it for me was, you know, I, I was born and raised in Cleveland. There is no bigger you know, fan as teenager, twenties, growing up, whatever, than I was of the Browns, Cavs, and Indians. You know, I covered 
the 2016 World Series Cubs Indians. And remember what a classic game seven that was with the Rajay yeah. Davis home run off of Aroldis Chapman in the eighth inning. And then it, the rain delay and it goes into extra innings and then the Cubs break the 108 year streak or whatever. But when Rajay Davis hit that tying home run at Progressive Field in game seven, which is an iconic all time World Series home run, yeah. that was actually my thought. It wasn't, you know, I can't lie to you and say I didn't have a slight twinge of, Oh my God, the, you know, Cleveland may actually has a chance to win this world series, but that was replaced very quickly by, I felt privileged to be in the ballpark observing, you know, the equivalent of the Bernie Carbo home run, uh, in 1975 in that classic game six, that, that became a couple of innings before the Carlton Fisk home run that everybody, you know, talks right. about, but people more, you know, people forget the Carbo home run, but, but knowing that I was in the ballpark and observing the reaction of you know the fans both cubs and indians fans to that home run as it went over the wall and and just appreciating the fact that that I was there and and in the front row of the press box and and covering that in my hometown um but then at literally 3 seconds later it's control alt delete because I had a complete Cubs win the World <laughs> Series game story written because the Indians entered that bottom of the eighth inning down three runs. They were out of it. Yeah. It was done. It was over. And then it was, like I said, three seconds of appreciation. And then I'm back down to my computer and, uh, you know, control, alt, delete. You've been there. Uh, we've all been there. Uh, and, and you go to work. And then when the Cubs went ahead uh, and then ultimately, you know, it was all about trying to capture as best I could for the Newsday audience or whoever was going to read it online to capture the moment of the Cubs winning the, the for, and that was the pressure yeah. that I felt of, you know, trying to put it in some kind of a context, uh, you know, that didn't make me look like a, a neophyte um, and, and not, you know, overwrite the moment, but certainly not underwrite it either. And that was my main thing more so than my hometown Cleveland Indians, you know, had lost a, a you know, heartbreaking game seven of the world series that really had nothing to do with, uh, with any of my thought process uh, at the time. All right. I know we've got a minute left, so I'll ask my last question. Give it to me. Give me a succinct answer. What's your legacy? Oh, I, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I remember when I was at John Carroll University, where I went to undergrad, and Bill Nichols, who was a longtime sports writer for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, was the uh, the, the the professor. Uh, he had retired and was teaching at some of the local colleges, and so I took an elective course, sports journalism one hundred and one. And I remember Bill describing his career as he said, "You know, I was never a superstar. Uh, I was never a, a celebrity reporter or anything like that. I was just a I was just a grinder that you know." lasted 30 some years in, in the business. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a lot of singles some doubles, you know, occasionally an extra, you know, uh, occasionally hit one over the wall and, you know, I'm happy with that. And I always remember that description and uh, I, I would kind of categorize myself in a similar way. You know, I mean, I, I think that uh, hopefully I've gotten better at this job each year that I've done it. As I said earlier, I, I, I've never felt more challenged by it. I've never enjoyed it more, um, you know, and, and if people just say, you know, he was, uh, you know, he did a solid job. He was fair. Uh, he was objective. He was accurate. Uh, you know, if people were just just describe me in, in those terms. I, I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Well, I'll tell you, you hit a home run today. So I, I appreciate <laughs> your time. I know you got to run. Uh, we'll, we'll do this again. Uh, thank you very I, much absolutely. for joining me. You're quite welcome, David. Enjoyed meeting you and very much, uh, very much enjoyed talking to you this morning. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.